This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialists. Good morning. In today's headlines, what will happen when Title 42 ends this week? The city of El Paso, Texas has an idea and it's declared a state of emergency. Carrie Lake calls for free and fair elections at America Fest in Phoenix. Meanwhile, her team begins inspecting a small selection of election ballots this week. Elon Musk to step down as Twitter CEO. The social media company owner asks people to vote on his future in a Twitter poll. We have the results. A Thai Navy ship capsized off the coast of Thailand. More than 30 people are still missing after 17 hours. Rescue efforts are underway. And history was made at the FIFA Soccer World Cup Final. The last game of the tournament lived up to the hype. We have fans' reactions. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, December 19th. We start off with our top news. The city of El Paso, Texas, is bracing for a possible jump in illegal border crossings. That's because a U.S. judge ordered a COVID-era border restriction known as Title 42 to end on Wednesday. The city's Democratic mayor declared a state of emergency on Saturday. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the expected influx. Democratic Mayor Oscar Leeser cited the hundreds of illegal border crossers currently sleeping on the streets in cold temperatures and the thousands being apprehended every day as reasons for the emergency declaration. By calling it a state of emergency, it gives us the ability today to be able to do things we couldn't do until we called it, and that's our shelters, and put people in shelters and make sure that they're safe. During a press conference on Saturday, Leeser highlighted the border city's challenge with the expected end of Title 42, an order that allowed agents to rapidly send illegal immigrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border back to Mexico or other countries. The influx on Wednesday will be incredible. It will be huge. Uh, talking to um, some of our federal partners, they really believe that on Wednesday our numbers go, will go from 2,500 to four, five, or maybe 6,000. And uh, when I asked them, I said, do you believe that you guys can handle it today? The answer was no. When I got an answer of no, that meant we needed to do something and do something right away. There's not enough shelters. Mario D'Agostino, El Paso's deputy city manager, says the emergency declaration will also provide the city with extra transportation options to bus illegal immigrants to other locations and get extra help from state law enforcement. As the number of illegal border crossings increased in late August, the city launched a busing program that sent nearly 14,000 illegal immigrants to New York and Chicago, saying many Venezuelans were arriving without U.S. sponsors. El Paso halted the busing program in October when the Biden administration began expelling Venezuelans back to Mexico under Title 42. But D'Agostino says the program could restart if Venezuelans again are allowed to cross into El Paso. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The city says border agents encountered well over 2,000 illegal immigrants a day in the El Paso sector last week on average. This marks a 40% increase compared with October. Yes, and separately from that news, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said earlier this month that the state government will resume building a wall on the southern border in January. That's after months of negotiations with private property owners along the border. 
And Carrie Lake has vowed to take her election fight all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. She made an appearance at the Turning Point USA America Fest yesterday in Phoenix, Arizona. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. They messed with the wrong woman. Lake spoke at length about what she called botched and stolen elections and repeatedly emphasized the importance of what she called free and fair elections. It is the bedrock on which everything that matters to us rests. She used the stage as a call to action as she appealed to the crowd of young conservatives in attendance. The event's website described it as the largest celebration of our constitutional rights and freedoms. Lake discussed hot-button issues like guns, abortions, fentanyl, and the border. We will not have leaders in office that protect our rights unless we have free and fair elections and we stand up at this very moment. Between criticizing what she called the fake media, her opponent Katie Hobbs, and Maricopa County elections officials like Bill Gates, she promised to remain a thorn in their sides. I think they're all wondering what I'm going to do. I'll tell you what, I'm not just going to knock that house of cards over. We're going to burn it to the ground. In related news, Lake got a small win on Friday. A judge overseeing an Arizona electoral lawsuit ruled that she may appoint an inspector to analyze a small selection of Maricopa County ballots cast in the 2022 election. The inspection may begin on December 20th unless Lake's lawsuit is dismissed beforehand. Lake sued Democrat Katie Hobbs, the current Arizona Secretary of State and Governor-elect, and Maricopa County on December 9th. The lawsuit alleges that, quote, hundreds of thousands of illegal ballots infected the election in Maricopa County. Meanwhile, attorneys for Maricopa County, Arizona, asked a judge to toss Lake's lawsuit last week. In a motion filed on December 8th, they stated that the lawsuit is based on pure speculation about what might have happened during Election Day. They say the claims in Lake's lawsuit are, quote, insufficient for a court to reduce the vote totals in the official certification and alter the outcome of the election, and that Lake's team has not provided evidence of even a single illegal vote. The trial date is set for December 20th. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Other speakers at the festival include Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and Candace Owens. NTD has been live streaming this four-day event. You can find the link on our website, ntd.com. Meanwhile, the oral arguments in Carrie Lake's lawsuit will start today. Elon Musk launched a Twitter poll yesterday evening asking users whether he should step down as head of the platform. Over 17 million people participated and it ended shortly after 6 a.m. this morning. Voters have elected to have the Twitter CEO step down by a margin of 57 to 42 percent. Musk says he will abide by the results of the poll. Meanwhile, Twitter deleted a controversial new policy on Sunday evening that banned links to certain social media platforms. The reversal comes less than 24 hours after the policy's initial introduction. The policy caused immense backlash. Twitter later removed the blog post that outlined which rival sites users would be prohibited from tweeting links to, including Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon and Truth Social. It also deleted a tweet thread from its Twitter support account that had announced the policy earlier in the day. And meanwhile, Matt Taibbi posted the latest installment of the Twitter files yesterday evening 
evening. It provides more details about FBI communication with the social media company. It highlights the agency's apparent displeasure with Twitter for indicating they had not observed much recent activity from foreign propaganda actors on the platform. Taibi writes how FBI agent Elvis Chan remarked that discussions within the United States intelligence community pushed for clarifications within Twitter on its propaganda monitoring, often using mainstream media articles as sources. And the dispute between Starbucks and locations that are unionizing has escalated over the last few days. This follows Starbucks union workers' one-day strike on Red Cup Day in November. Let's take a look. Over the past three days, baristas in more than 100 Starbucks union stores across the U.S. were on strike. This is the second widespread strike by Starbucks Workers United. Union workers say the strike is in response to Starbucks' retaliation against the unions, such as closing stores that have voted to join the union. Ryan Kiefer, a Starbucks shift supervisor, organized the strike in Chicago. He says he's protesting Starbucks' efforts to bust the unionization of stores, including the store where he used to work. They were closed a week before they were going to start contract negotiations. Starbucks specified security issues as the reason they closed the store. But, you know, we, we all know the real reason. They were just trying to union bust. It's obvious what they were trying to do. Kiefer also says Starbucks nullified a mail-in election to unionize the store where he's currently working. Starbucks tried to throw out that uh, election, claiming that because those people voted in person that the entire election was invalid. Um, we still won 12 to 2 at this location, even without those ballots. Shane Schmidt, a shift supervisor at another Chicago store, says Starbucks discriminates against union baristas on wage increases. And Starbucks has been now conveniently giving raises to all the stores who are not unionized and punishing all the rest of the stores that have unionized. Schmidt says Starbucks doesn't respect union members' rights. They've sent a couple of us home for wearing union shirts, which is a protected federal right. It's been, it's been very frustrating. In November's one-day strike, union workers protested Starbucks walking away from contract negotiations. Starbucks says unions are not necessary because of the competitive compensation and benefits it offers, and in the past has blamed the union for a lack of progress at the bargaining table. NTD reached out to Starbucks for comment, but did not receive a response by broadcast time. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. We're going overseas to China. Lines of hearses bearing the dead lined the driveway of a designated COVID-19 crematorium in Beijing on Saturday. Workers at a dozen funeral homes across the country were around 10 times busier than normal. Hospitals are overwhelmed as COVID cases skyrocket. Many are short of medicine and staff. Videos of cars waiting for the crematory are circulating online. Bags of bodies can be seen laying in hospitals waiting to be cremated. Funeral homes and crematoriums across the country are struggling to keep up with demand as staff and drivers testing positive for COVID call in sick. Some crematoriums are running 24 hours but don't have enough space to store and handle the bodies. Some report that the explosion of death follows the regime's reversal of its tight restrictions this month, which appears to have come after unprecedented protests. But many experts, including the World Health Organization, believe the outbreak was already out of control before the ease of COVID policy. A China expert says the sudden easing of lockdowns is merely a political play from the Chinese regime. 
They know the outbreak is already out of control, and if they continue to use zero policy, the world will know that it doesn't work and that its policy is all just a lie. This will damage the regime leader's proclaimed policy, so they had to quickly ease the lockdown. This will give people the impression that the CCP is listening to its people, and at the same time, the CCP can blame the explosion of deaths and the out-of-control outbreak on the so-called freedom that they gave to people. A Hong Kong newspaper reports that a funeral home in Beijing is working around the clock. The location can cremate more than 300 bodies a day, but even so, it has a backlog of over 2,000 bodies. And a new study from Hong Kong published last week says China's COVID death toll could reach about 1 million. And coming up, it's the largest amount of opium Canada's border agency has ever seized. Find out more about the record confiscation and how it was discovered. And at least three people are in serious condition and dozens still missing after a Thai Navy ship sank off Thailand's coast. Rescue efforts continued overnight in search of survivors. We have that and more after the break. It's the largest seizure of opium in Canada's history. Canadian border officials say they have confiscated over 5,000 pounds of the illicit drug. The discovery was made at the port of Vancouver in British Columbia. To give you an idea of just how large this is, the shipment is more than half of all opium seizures in Canada's Pacific region over the last five years. Far too many Canadians are, or know someone who is, struggling with substance use. With this seizure of opium, we will help keep more harmful substances off our streets, keep additional profits out of the hands of organized crime, and save many, many lives. Although this significant drug seizure has undoubtedly put a dent in organized crime, the investigation into these individuals responsible is ongoing. The opium was found hidden in the footings of around 250 blue shipping pallets. The estimated street value is roughly $50 million. The investigation first started in September this year. 19 marine containers were searched. Border staff say officers found irregularities in the pallets. They use a wide range of detection tools and technology that includes X-ray imaging and detector dogs. Upon further physical inspection, they found the drugs. No arrests have been made yet. At least three people are in serious condition and dozens are still missing after a Thai Navy vessel sank off the coast of Thailand yesterday. The HTMS Sukhothai sank after encountering bad weather around 20 miles offshore, which led to engine malfunction. The Navy reported that of the total 106 crew, 78 have been rescued so far. 28 remained in the water after being forced to abandon ship. Pictures shared by the Navy showed the gray vessel flipped over onto its side. Another image on scanner screen showed the bow of the ship and a gun turret poking about out above the waterline as it went down. Helicopters and warships have been deployed as efforts to rescue the remaining crew are ongoing. We're going from sea to air. A flight from Phoenix to Honolulu hit severe turbulence on Sunday. Eleven people were left seriously injured in what a Hawaiian Airlines official called an isolated and unusual event. Of the 278 passengers and 10 crew members, 
20 were taken to hospital, three of them flight attendants. At least one was rendered unconscious, but all patients were awake and talking by the time they reached the hospital. Other passengers suffered cuts, bumps and bruises. Some were nauseous and vomited because of extreme motion. A total of 36 passengers received treatment. Investigations will look into what measures were taken to avoid damage aside from turning on the fastened seatbelt sign. A young couple's car plummeted over the edge of a steep canyon in California last week, but they miraculously survived. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department says it was a 300-foot plunge into Monkey Canyon in the Angeles National Forest. Their car smashed into a few trees on the way down before it flipped over and came to a rest at the bottom of the canyon wheels up. A rescue team by helicopter pulled the couple out. Incredibly, the couple only had facial bruises, some cuts, and a bit of neck pain with a concussion. The couple had one more piece of luck to get help. Despite no cell service in the area, their iPhone detected a crash. Through an SOS satellite feature, it relayed their location to emergency responders. The world's largest contract electronics maker, Foxconn, is likely facing a fine by Taiwan's government. The company is set to have made an unauthorized investment in a Chinese chip maker. This according to a person with direct knowledge of the matter. The company is a major Apple supplier and iPhone maker. It previously disclosed investments in embattled Chinese chip conglomerate Tsinghua Unigroup, but announced late last week that it would be selling any shares. Taiwan responded by saying it will fine Foxconn. According to earlier media reports, the fine could be over $800 million if sanctioned. Taiwan has been tightening legislation to prevent what it calls China's theft of its chip technology. The annual Swedish Gingerbread House competition is underway in Stockholm. This year's theme is based on works by famous Swedish authors. Entity's Kostemines tells us more about this year's competition and its winner. The winner of the annual Swedish Christmas Gingerbread House competition was crowned on Sunday. The competition, now in its 15th year, is held at Stockholm's Museum of Architecture and Design. This year's winning entry was a house based on Astrid Lindgren's Pippi Longstocking books. It was designed and constructed by regular participants Zana Livian Wexel, Monica Stenholm and Cecilia Klaving. I think we kind of hope that children would like it, what we make this year. But at the same time, I mean, there were a lot of very, uh, very nice uh, gingerbread houses uh, as part of the competition. It featured an array of characters from Lindgren's beloved series, children's books. Actually, we always wanted to do the Pippi Lundstrom house, Villa Villicula, uh, and this year was the year. This year's theme set by the organizers was named Around the Corner. Other entries included literary themes such as the books of Swedish author Selma Lagerlöf and the fairy tale of Rapunzel, as well as robots, ferris wheels and even a gingerbread Pac-Man game. The exhibition has become a popular feature of Christmas celebrations in the Swedish capital. It runs until January the 8th. Kost MNS, NTD News. Up next, the FIFA Soccer World Cup has ended with one of the most dramatic games of the tournament. The game went to overtime and finished with a penalty shootout. We have the results and fan reactions. And Santa has left Rudolph and his sleigh in the North Pole. All around the world, Santas are trying out new modes of transport. Find out more after the break.
Welcome back. The FIFA World Cup has ended with a remarkable final. The nail-biter ended with Argentina and France tying three-all before Argentina won in a 4-2 penalty shootout. NTD's Flinders Kingsley reports. Argentina pushed ahead, scoring two goals, but reigning champ France did not give up so easily, with forward Mbappe scoring twice to even the score. Each team scored a goal in overtime to level the game at 3-all. The game then progressed to a penalty shootout, which Argentina secured 4-2. It was thrilling. We were born to suffer. This is the only thing we can do, to suffer. So, there was no other choice but to end the game and win this way. Lionel Messi, who is considered one of the greatest soccer players of all time, scored two goals in the game and secured his first World Cup victory in what could be his last World Cup. He now shares status in Argentina with his fellow countryman and historic great, Diego Maradona, who helped bring home the trophy in 1986. This is unexplainable. I'm 34 years old and I had never seen Argentina become champions. To celebrate it here with everyone and having the bonus that Messi got the trophy, it's unexplainable happiness. After Frenchman Mbappe scored two goals to even the score and pushed the game into overtime, he completed a three-goal hat-trick with the extra minutes. This is the second time in World Cup history that a hat-trick has been scored in a final, and the first time since 1966. But it wasn't enough to win the game. I think during the first 80 minutes, Argentina completely controlled the game. Yet, I wanted to wait until the end, as I didn't know what would happen. Really, in the last 20 minutes, France made a plot twist, and I think in the end, both teams were huge opponents. Two great teams. The victory means Argentina now has three World Cup titles. 1978, 1986, and now 2022. Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. And Santa Claus is known for traveling around in a sleigh, but over the weekend he was spotted around the world using other means of travel. And today's Flinders Kingsley has that story. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. When Santa visited Rome over the weekend, he rode his bicycle. In fact, hundreds of Santa-clothed Italians rode their bikes throughout Rome to raise money for sick children. In Venezuela, a fun run was held with the locals donning their red Santa hats and white beards. However, with an average day in Venezuela reaching around 80 degrees this time of year, there were distinctly fewer Santa jackets. And now that we are approaching Christmas time, when we know that we are going to fill ourselves with food, it is a good time to make this last push and be prepared for next year. Santa usually gets around with the help of his reindeer, but in Japan over the weekend, he was getting around on his hog. Around 250 Santas rode their Harley Davidsons to raise awareness for a campaign against child abuse. I myself have a child, and I wanted to do something to help prevent some of those heartbreaking cases of child abuse. That is why I'm participating. And while Santa usually has reindeer pull his sleigh, in Venice he gave Rudolph the day off and sailed down the river in a gondola. The Italian Santa Claus or Babbo Natale sailed down the Grand Canal in Venice for the 12th edition of the colorful Christmas regatta. Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. 
that gondola would definitely be my preferred way of travel. Oh, yeah. Well, if you don't have any reindeer or sleigh available, right? Uh, unfortunately not. Just got to make sure you're on time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we go, remember you can write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. That's it for today. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.